My message today is entitled, The Name of the Lord. If you were here last week or if you tuned in last week, I began a series on the Ten Commandments for today. Not just trying to memorize them, but understand what they mean, why they're given, and how they should still be taught and understood and applied today. It's very important because it hasn't, doesn't happen in a lot of churches today. Um, and I will tell you, um, if you've known me long enough, I get passionate when I preach um, and, and in the Word of God. Um, but when I teaching on the commandments because of the seriousness of it, I want you to understand that it's common to feel convicted before God. Remember, the law was brought to show us to show us that we're guilty, not to pat us on the back, but to show us that we're guilty. And because we're guilty, it showed us that we need God. That's why the law came. And so, when we teach on this stuff, we're not talking about shame or condemnation. We're talking about a conviction that says, God, I want to be more like you. And so it's natural to feel conviction, but that's a positive thing if it leads us to God to be forgiven and restored and healed. So my message today is on the third commandment. Last week I covered the first two. I want to begin in Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. I want to tell you that the third commandment is more than just a referendum against profane swearing, as many people attribute it to. The root of this holy law centers on the reverence and respect for God himself. Yet reverence is not something that can only be legislated or made into a law. It must be understood and realized from the proper perspective. Therefore, to understand the honor of His name, we must consider how God gave us His name, listen to this, as a gift. That we might begin to see the true worth and power in His name. When someone gives you a gift, there's an intentional choice you make. You either cherish it and take great care of it, or you use it sparingly carelessly, or not at all, and thus having received it in vain. How you receive and honor a gift by how you use it, by how you talk about it or display it, shows how you respect the giver of the gift. With that being said, how do you personally respect the Lord God fully receiving and talking about and honoring His name? I caution you to not think too highly of yourself, as the Bible warns. Remember from last last week's teachings that the law and the Ten Commandments are like a mirror that reveals our true spiritual condition before God. Just as a mirror shows every wrinkle, every pimple, every scar and blemish, as long as there's enough light shining into the mirror, The Ten Commandments show an accurate assessment of our spiritual state if we allow the Holy Spirit to shine His light into all areas of our life. Therefore, how do you respect His name in all your words, in all your thoughts, in all your actions, and in all your prayers? 
The truth is that most people, even most Christians, do not revere His name as it was as it's been taught. They use His name like they would use any other person that they are talking about. Yet in Old Testament times, the Jews rarely even spoke His name. There is a tradition that His name was heard but one time a year when it was uttered by the high priest on the great day of atonement. Also, in reading the Scriptures, it became customary never to pronounce His name, but to replace it with another divine name. This was a clear example of reverence and holy fear and respect and honor. And His name was given the highest honor in all the Israelites' endeavors. In fact, do you know why they built the temple? Let me tell you why, for the very purpose why they built the temple. Why God commanded them to build the temple. It's in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5. I'm not sure if you saw this before. It says, And behold, I propose, this is David speaking. Um, I'm sorry, it's Solomon speaking. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Why did he build it? For the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. The temple was not just built for the Lord. It held the glory and the honor of His name in the temple. It was not a trite saying that there is power in the name of the Lord. For His name was consecrated which means set apart and honored through the building of the temple. Therefore, as we make parallels of each of ourselves being the temple for the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about, we must not underestimate the importance that we have in holding the glory and the honor of the name of the Lord inside each one of us. When His name is honored and set apart in our hearts, we will become like David, leading with the name of the Lord. You see, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't just a sling and a stone that took down Goliath. It was the divine power behind it. Let me take you to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, he's speaking to Goliath, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, when faced with a giant who defied the Lord God, David came in the name of the Lord. He didn't need to hope that God would show up. There is already power in His name. And David knew that. Therefore, when we respect His name and honor His name and lead with the power that is already inherent in His name, we can expect giants to fall as well. But when we mention His name in very common ways without acknowledging the power in His name, we take it in vain. In fact, let's look at another version of Scripture where, where, where it, 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 it relates to this, containing the, uh, the third commandment. So I, I, we began by talking about, I showed you in the New King James Version. Here's another version 
of the third commandment. It's in the version called God's Word, which is a great uh, version for understanding. It says it this way, Never use the name of the Lord your God carelessly. The Lord will make sure that anyone who carelessly uses His name will be punished. How have we as a people carelessly neglected to give honor to His name and His holy commandments? There are at least two main ways that many people have stripped God's Word of its true power and respect. This double attack is first the growing influence of society to be politically correct. And second, the false teaching in some churches today to pervert the truth of God's grace in order to try to erase the fear of God. Let's look at that commandment again. Exodus 20, verse 7. And the New King James says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guilty, those who take his name in vain. It begins with, you shall not. Notice the reoccurrence of these words in all the commandments. Evidently, God was not operating on the same level of present-day psychologists who deplore negative commandments. I couldn't possibly tell you not to do something because it might hurt your self-esteem. That's what's being taught in society today. Some Christian teachers under a perverted application of grace have even fallen into the error error of supposing that all of Jesus' commandments were actually positive commandments. However, look at these commands from a single sermon of Jesus' that He gave on the Sermon on the Mount. He said stuff like this, Do not swear at all. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Do not do your charitable deeds before men. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Do not worry. Do not judge. It must be understood that God is the only good psychologist having in fact created the human mind. And these dramatic negatives certainly have their proper place in the restraint of human wickedness. God does not say, please do this. Or wouldn't you like to do that? But rather, you shall not. The penalties are relentless and disobedience is revealed as fatal as He states that anyone who breaks His commandment will be held guilty. Yet this command is broken all too often in a variety of ways. At the head of this list, as we know, because of its prevalence, is common, profane, vulgar swearing using the Lord's name. This has been called the sin without temptation. It is evidence of disrespect and resentment and literally a sign of unbelief. Let me be absolutely clear what it means when you use GD or when you use God's name in a curse word. When you damn someone, you are telling them that you want them to go to hell. Therefore, when you use God's name like this, you are literally telling God that you want Him to go to hell. Listen, I have had friends that used to throw around that curse word all the time until I told them in no uncertain terms what that specific curse word means. They stopped saying it immediately. And there are other forms, however, of taking God's name in vain. 
there is hypocrisy in which God is spoken of, but not in sincerity. The man who says, Lord, Lord, but does not do God's will, is profane. The performance of actions in the name of God, which in fact are not commanded of Him, is also profanity. There's a biblical example of this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but it's about the sons of Sceva. It's in the 19th chapter of Acts, and it illustrates this point. Acts 19, verse 13, beginning there, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? You see, though there is power in the name of the Lord, this power is only accessible to those who have a genuine relationship with the Lord. But be warned that without a relationship, the consequences are more than just no access to the power. Verse 16, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Verse 17, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. This example has been included in Scripture to serve as a warning for all who attempt to call upon the name of the Lord for self-serving interests. There is a movement of people in the church today, and they are called the Name It and Claim It group. They believe they can name it and claim it for God. And God, and they believe that God has to uh, give them what they want because they claimed it in God's name. It's also often referred to as the word of faith movement. Name it and claim it. These people who attempt to use God's name to bring blessings to themselves are actually invoking curses upon themselves which are being stored up for the day of wrath. For God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The third commandment requires a proper use to be made of the gift of speech, highlighting that man and woman are at the top of the material creation with the crowning glory of intelligent speech. That's what makes us different than all other creations. We have intelligent speech. God reveals Himself to us by word, by name, as to a speaking being, making language a bond between us and Him. In so doing, God commands us to use this great gift of speech in worshiping and honoring Him. The tongue is the glory of man. And the glory of the tongue is to voice the praises of God. We are to speak of Him and to Him with adoration. For He is our Creator, our Father, our Preserver, our King, and our Judge. We are to speak of Him and to Him with love and praise. We are to speak to Him in worship and of Him to each other. 
only in such a way that should promote worship in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. God used His spoken Word to create life. And just look at how we have perverted this gift by throwing around His name as it were something to be trifled with. Theologian J.H. Thornwell gives this rebuke on the subject. It is enough to make the blood curdle, to think of the name of God bandied about as a plaything of fools. The offense cannot go unpunished. He must vindicate His own majesty and glory. You may sport with the whirlwind and trifle with the storm. You may lay your hand upon the lion's mane and you may play with the leopard's spots. You may go to the very crater of a burning volcano and laugh at the lava which it belches out in thunder. You may trifle with any and everything, but trifle not with God. Let there be one holy thing upon which you dare not lay a profane hand, and let that be the name of God. Pretty powerful. As you begin to see the absolute importance of respecting and revering and setting apart the name of the Lord, understand that this command goes deeper still. What are you personally, and again, I speak to myself every time, but what are you personally doing in the name of God and attaching His name to it? Of course, you might say, I'm not attaching His name to the bad things I do or say, but let me remind you that you are standing in front of the mirror. If you have truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have truly repented of your sins, and have identified with the Lord as being a child of God, then understand that you have taken on a new name. You are, like I am, a Christian. What does that mean? First, it means that we have taken on the Lord's name of Christ and attached it to who we are, what we believe, how we live, and everything we represent, whether we are in a church or at home or out in public. We've taken on His name. With that being said, in what ways have you and do you still take the Lord's name in vain or take it for granted? You see, if we only talk about the unbelievers and we only talk about the false teachers, then we fail ourselves to look in the mirror. The name of the Lord is given such great importance because of how we approach God in prayer. If we approach Him with any false motives or wrong associations of Him and His character, he knows it. Therefore, we must do all we can to study this topic in its entirety that we may truly know the Lord God whom we honor with our thoughts and our words and our actions. The sad truth is that most people attach more value to money than to the name of God. I want to illustrate this point with a, an analogy. What if Every usage of God's name costs you $10. What do you think would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. People would respect the name of the Lord and only use it when they needed to call upon His name. Those who currently only use it flippantly would seldom, if ever, use it. 
while those who knew the power of His name and fully trusted in Him at His word would sacrifice other belongings and work even harder to be able to earn the opportunity to call upon His name. People would no longer take His name in vain because they would realize quickly the consequence of using it so commonly without regard to the glory and the power that is held in His name. Yet how sad is it knowing that people would respond more to the loss and value of money than to the Word of God, where He clearly says you will be held guilty for taking His name in vain. The sad fact is that many Christians don't even know what they believe. His name goes to the very core of all we believe. Let me show it to you in Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It is not just believing in Jesus that affords you eternal life, for the devil himself believes in Jesus. He just doesn't believe in His name. You must believe in the name of the Son of God and all the respect and reverence and fear and honor that comes with it. Otherwise, you side yourself with the devil. We have to understand the depth of this commandment if we are to go forward with God in anything and in everything we do. Yet most people do not look in the mirror long enough to see their own blemishes. We are so quick to comment on how far society has fallen, but we neglect to use that same standard of judgment upon ourselves. The worst thing is that we don't even realize or seemingly care how hypocritical we have come in breaking this commandment. In the most recited prayer of the world for Christians, Matthew 6, verse 9, our memory verse for today, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How does one pray that the name of the Lord be hallowed? What does hallowed mean? It means praised and revered and honored and set apart. How does one pray for his name to be hallowed, but then be casually thrown around amongst all other words? Jesus taught us to pray in this manner, that we would first hallow and give honor to his name. This is to be our foundation, not a side note. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. You've heard me preach this in my prayers, that his name is above sickness, his name is above depression, his name is above, uh, above conflict, his name is above confusion, his name is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. His name is truly the name above all other names. Which brings us to where we are right now as a church today.
because I call myself a minister of God, and we declare our church to be a house of God, it is very important that we take this teaching seriously and not take His name in vain, not ascribe it to ourselves if it is not of God. James 3, verse 1. This is a verse that's for me. It's not for you, but I'm going to share it. James 3, verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. What's that mean? It means if I teach the Word of God and I teach it incorrectly, then anything that should be any consequence, because if you do it incorrectly, is blood on my hands. That's what God says of a preacher who doesn't, who, we, I cannot compromise the Word of God. I have to teach it in its entirety. Because if I teach you to do something wrong, you can say my teacher or my pastor told me. And so I have a much greater accountability to God. I feel compelled to teach on taking communion in a worthy manner as the Bible states. It is a vitally important topic that should be taught by every pastor in every church, but I guarantee you it is seldom taught. I want to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, But let a man examine himself, examine herself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, For this reason, this reason, because we've not examined ourselves, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. We are commanded in Scripture to examine ourselves under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and to be extremely cautious about taking communion, communion in an unworthy manner. If we refuse to acknowledge, acknowledge something in us that is not at peace, something in us that is still raw and causing conflict in us, then we are drinking judgment to ourselves. How is this an example of eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? I'll tell you. By accepting Jesus, by, by doing those elements, we're accepting all that Jesus did for us. Because when Jesus died on the cross, He took all of our sins, all of our pain, all of our sorrows, all of our weight, and put it on Himself to bear our burdens completely. When we go through personal struggles and wrestle with emotions and perspectives and responses, we are taking some of that weight back on us to try to reason with it, to eventually get to a place where we can fully trust it and give it back to God. We do this because we are human. And we are weak. And we all do it at times. And that's why God gives us grace to process through these challenges. God allows you to wrestle with things. Do you remember the story of Jacob 
who was later later be given the name Israel, he wrestled all night with the man of God. The man of God could have easily taken him out, but God allowed him to wrestle as long as we're only wrestling with God and not social media or the world. There are times that we wrestle with things that are going on. And God gives us grace to process through the challenges. With the continual guidance and strength of the Holy Spirit, as long as we stay submitted to Him, we will put all the weight eventually back on Jesus. However, if we are in the middle of the process and not at peace currently with something or someone, and then we take communion, what we are saying is this, and listen, if we're in the middle and not at peace, and we take communion, we are saying this, God, judge me right now. Don't wait for the Holy Spirit to complete His work in me. Don't wait for me to put this weight back on Jesus. Judge me now. I can only speak for myself. But my fear of God is far greater than my fear of man or what others think of me or what others do to me. Because of some things that we are currently working through as leaders of this church, I am not at peace in some areas. Now I'm fully confident that Jesus will complete the process and bring healing to me and my family and the leadership team here and eventually the whole church. But to remain honest with God and with all of you, I am in the middle of the process right now. Contrary to popular belief, the pastor is a real person too. I do not want to drink judgment to myself. Nor do I want anyone here to drink judgment to themselves because God is still working on all who remain submitted to Him. Even if I am being judged right now by people, I know that I am honoring God by being honest with Him and teaching God's people what the Scripture means regarding this, regarding this seldomly taught truth in His Word. Because I care about my eternal salvation and I deeply care about all of you. This is why I'm teaching on this crucial subject. In fact, Jesus goes on to say this. In John 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father takes care of the vineyard. Verse 2, He removes every one of my branches that doesn't produce fruit, and He also prunes every branch in me that does produce fruit to make it produce more fruit. As the vine dresser or the one who takes care of the vineyard, God continually prunes every branch in Him that bears fruit. Why? So that it can produce more fruit. Our job as a church is to produce fruit. You know what kind of fruit God's talking about? It's people's lives. Our job is not to just gather. Our, our job is to gather for the Word and then scatter and to share His Word to produce fruit, fruit for God's kingdom. See this, when God says He prunes, what this means is He cuts away parts in us. Our motivations, our actions, our ministries, our churches that need to be looked at and need to be improved. God continues to prune so that we can bear more fruit. And sometimes because we're human, we get so attached to ways of doing things that we're more devoted to the method instead of being devoted to God. After all, this is exactly what happened to the Pharisees. For they loved their traditions more than their God and didn't even recognize it when He walked right past them. 
As a result, we are all pruned. And we all go through seasons where we must examine what we are doing, especially since we have taken on the name of the Lord in what we do. And we do not want to use His name in vain. And when we look at things from different perspectives, oftentimes feelings are hurt, confusion temporarily sets in, and if people are not patiently trusting God through the entire process, then sometimes people begin to act or react out of a wound, out of an insecurity, and oftentimes out of a lack of knowledge in a certain area. Let me assure you that this is completely natural. And part of the process that every group goes through, whether it is a business or an organization or a church, the successful groups are ones that confront problems so that they, they can improve and go forward. Let me also state that we are a covenant people committed to one another under a holy and righteous God. As a congregational church, we covenant with one another, declaring that we are committed to seeing things through. No matter what it takes, we're going to see this through. Committed to working through issues. Committed to the love of Christ in the family of God. Yet we must allow God to prune us. Not only so that we can bear more fruit, but also so that we can help those who have fallen and can't get up on their own. The local church is a picture of God's hands and His feet and His mouth and His body in the world. There are people hurting that we must be aware of. And we must go after those people and bring about reconciliation. We are commanded of this very thing in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. God has done all this. He has restored our relationship with Him through Christ and has given us the ministry of restoring relationships. He's asking us to now restore relationships. Verse 19, in other words, God was using Christ to restore His relationship with humanity. He did not hold people's faults against them. They're in the process. He's restoring. And He has given us the message of restore relationships to tell others. That's what the church is about. It's restoring relationships and seeking reconciliation. Church, this is our calling. We are to pray for them. We are to go after those who are hurting. Those who have fallen along the wayside and are waiting at this very moment for someone to have compassion on them. How do I know? Because I've been there before. My wife and I in our past have a long past, and there was a time when we had to step out of church. And after a while, when there's no calls, you begin to feel, does anybody know I'm here? Does anybody know that I'm hurting? Does anybody care that I'm here? Those are the thoughts that come out to you when you're off there hurting. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you know someone who's been there before. But we have to acknowledge those people. Because why? They're part of our family. We need to be willing to help lead them back into the fold so that they, we can become a healed and united family of God. That is our purpose. That's why we 
prune ourselves. That's why we look at things where they're not bearing fruit because we want to be healed so that we can help people. For anyone out there right now that may be confused or hurting or feel lost or angry or sad, I want you to know first and foremost that God sees you. He knows where you are at. You've not escaped His notice. He loves you and He wants to restore you and reconcile you completely with the family of God. God also wants you to know that He is doing a mighty work through all of us here in this church, committing to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are praying for you. We are reaching out to you and we acknowledge your pain and your desire to be restored and healed and fully reconciled in the name of the Lord. With Christ as our head, we will see reconciliation and restoration in all of God's family.